Our Father, again, we thank you for the gift of your Son who gave his life that we might have life. As we have eaten, as we have taken this cup, we proclaim his death. By your grace, we'll continue to do so until he returns. We thank you for the gift of your word, and may your spirit, who caused it to be written, give us understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 35. Jeremiah, chapter 35. Last Sunday, in looking at chapter 34, we learned of an interesting event, at least it was interesting to me, and that is an event in which Judah repented, and they demonstrated their repentance by their actions. The area of repentance had to do with their Jewish slaves. According to the law given to Moses, a man or woman could sell themselves into slavery to a fellow Hebrew for a period of six years, but in the seventh year, the Sabbath year, they were to be set free unless the slave wished it otherwise, and then the slave could in fact become what we traditionally think of as a slave, one for life. But the people of Jerusalem and Judah had not followed this law, and instead had enslaved these people for their whole lives. They decided to change their ways. They decided to repent and to release their slaves. And as we read in chapter 34, each of you proclaimed freedom to his countrymen, However, they didn't simply let them go and say, you know, you're on your own, we we release you, we emancipate you. They participated in a covenant ceremony in the temple area. We only find the ceremony one other place, and that's in the book of Genesis. And we learn more about it here, I think, than we do back in Genesis. But animals, here it is a calf, is cut in half. Half is put here, half is put on the other side. And those who are participating in the covenant walk in between the halves of the calf. And it is as much to say as in the same way that this calf has been cut in half, may the same thing happen to us if we do not keep this covenant. And yet, in fact, they did not keep the covenant. We're not sure about the timing of all of this, but if we had to guess, if I had to guess, it seems that they repented during a time of difficulty. The Babylonians had come against Jerusalem and it didn't look very good. And so perhaps the people of Jerusalem thought, well, maybe if we repent of something we've done, the Babylonians will go away. God will, you know, somehow deliver us. So they release the slaves, they engage in the covenant, and sure enough, the Babylonians leave because there's a problem with Egypt and so they go down to take care of the Egyptians. And as soon as the Babylonians, in a sense, are around the corner, They re-enslaved these people that they had just emancipated. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. He is not happy about this situation. And in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 34, we're given at least seven reasons why he's not happy. First of all, they have turned back on their repentance. As it's put, you have turned around. Repentance is a turning away from something and a turning to God. But in fact, these people turned from doing wrong to doing the right thing, and then as soon as the coast was clear, they went back to what they used to do. 
Secondly, they profaned God's name. And how is it? Because they entered into a covenant in the temple area. Thirdly, they re-enslaved the people that they had freed. Certainly a violation of the covenant. Fourthly, they did not obey God, the law that he had given to Moses centuries before. Fifthly, they did not proclaim freedom. You may say, wait a minute, I, I thought they did proclaim freedom. Well, talk is cheap. It must be accompanied by actions. If you say to someone you're free, but then you re-enslave them, then in fact you have not proclaimed liberty or freedom to that person. The sixth thing, which I think to me is the most interesting, the Lord says, they violated my covenant. Now, the people of Jerusalem could say, listen, okay, the other stuff, okay, we're guilty. But this covenant was between us and our slaves. We made a covenant that we were going to release them. How is it suddenly God's covenant? Well, because they entered into it in the presence of God. And I'm reminded very much of marriage, that marriage is not simply a covenant between a man and a woman. It is God's covenant. It is entered into in the presence of God. And lastly, as the Lord says, they did not fulfill the terms of the covenant that they made before me. So what are the, co- what are the terms of breaking the covenant? Well, the calf cut in half. And verse number, let's see, it's near the end of the chapter here. Um, I will hand over, verse number 20, I will hand over to their enemies who seek their lives. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Now we come to chapter 35. And the events described in chapter 35 happened at least a decade, perhaps 10 years before what we read in chapter 34. The natural question would be, I mean, we like chronology, we like progression. Why is it that somehow we revert back to something that happened 10 years before? I think it's because there's a theme going on. Because of the material in chapter 34 in which we saw people who did not keep their word, the contrast in chapter 35 is of people who in fact did keep their word. These people are known as the Rechabites, who for more than 250 years had followed a particular tradition. This chapter also sets the stage for what we'll see, the Lord willing, next week in chapter 36, in which Jehoiakim, the wicked king, Uh, takes the scroll that Jeremiah has written and cuts it up and throws it into the fire. Some background before we get to the story. The first verse gives us the time frame. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Just to review a bit and, and to remind you, the ministry of Jeremiah lasted about 40 years, and it covered the reigns of five different kings three major ones and two that lasted about three months each. Josiah was the good king. He was the first king, the reformer, and he reigned for 31 years. But he was killed by the Egyptians, and so he was replaced by his son, Jehoiahaz. Jehoiahaz, however, had the same philosophy politically that his father did, and so the Egyptians removed him from the throne and replaced him with someone named Eliakim. But Pharaoh Necho not only replaced the king, he changed the king's name. And this king is Jehoiakim, the very one that is mentioned in verse number one. He reigned for 11 years. 
And then he was replaced by Jeconiah, who reigned for a hundred days, three months and ten days. And finally, Zedekiah, whom we've been looking at for the past month or so. Jehoiakim is king. And as we read in Second Chronicles 36, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So he was not someone who did what he should have done. He had been put on the throne by Necho, the pharaoh of Egypt, and a burden, a very heavy tax burden, was put on him. He had to pay 100 talents of silver and one talent of gold every year. That's 3.4 metric tons of silver and 75 pounds of gold. Something happens, however, at a certain point. Nebuchadnezzar now becomes the ascending power. And he tells Jehoiakim, forget the Egyptians, you now need to pay me. Which Jehoiakim does for a period of time and then he rebels. And that leads to the first invasion of the Babylonians against Judah. Which is the historical context of uh, this is when this happens here in chapter 35. So if you look at verse number 11, I'm skipping ahead of it, but in verse number 11, but when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded this land, we said, come, we must go to Jerusalem to escape the Babylonian and Aramean armies. So we have remained in Jerusalem. So the people that Jeremiah is going to deal with, the Rechabites, are now in Jerusalem because of the first siege that is laid against Jerusalem. The Rechabites, these are the people that Jeremiah is to go and speak to. But who are these people? I will read the passage in a bit, but and then I think it will all fit together. Please be patient. Let me start by saying we know nothing about this family beyond what we are given in this particular chapter. They are the descendants of Jonadab, or as he's known in First uh, Kings, Jehonadab, who is the son of Rechab. Um, he is known in Second Kings 10 as Jehonadab. And he is mentioned there very briefly. If you know your Old Testament, there was a wicked king named Ahab with an equally wicked wife, Jezebel. Jehu is someone who comes to clean house. Uh, the northern kingdom has become pagan, and he is coming to get rid of Ahab and all of his people, and he is going to replace him on the throne. He sends out a letter to, the, to all the leaders throughout Israel and says, listen, Ahab has 70 sons and I want to see 70 heads at the city gates. And the leaders of Israel said, listen, this guy just killed the king of Judah. He's killed the king of Israel. We better not mess with him. So, in fact, they behead the 70 sons of Ahab and send the heads to Samaria. Jehu is on his way back to the capital when he meets Jehonadab. After he left there, he came upon Jehonadab, son of Rechab, who was on his way to meet him. Jehu greeted him and said, Are you in accord with me as I am with you? I am, Jehonadab answered. If so, give me your hand. So he did, and Jehu lifted him up into the chariot. Jehu said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Then he had him right along in his chariot. When Jehu came to Samaria, he killed all who were left there of Ahab's family. He destroyed them according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. In the next chapter, or in the next event in 2 Kings, Jehu comes up with a plan. 
he says to all the people who worship Baal or Baal and to the priest, Ahab was minorly compared to me. I am going to worship Baal like you would not believe. He says, I want all the priests of Baal to come to the temple for we're going to have a big meeting. And Jehonadab participates in it. He gets all the priests there. Then they lock the doors and they kill them all. Okay. This is the only time that we're told anything about this man named Jonadab. Then suddenly here in Jeremiah 35, his descendants show up. Beyond that, all we have is this passage. And what, from what we can tell, Jonadab set up a new way of living life. First of all, he and his family, his descendants, were never to drink wine. Secondly, they were not to build houses or live in houses. They were to live in tents. And thirdly, they were not to farm. They were not to plant seed or plant vineyards. You must always live in tents, he tells them, in the land where you are nomads. Let's be clear about something. God never said this is the way that they should live. He never required this way of living. These are human laws or human traditions. Whether or not this tradition is right is not an issue that is discussed in this chapter. It's beyond the scope of what's being discussed. Um, the issue is their obedience to what Jonadab had taught them. Now, it is worth noting that the Rechabites are like the Nazarites. Uh, the Nazarites are those who, you know, they entered into a covenant with God and they would not drink wine and they would not cut their hair and they could not touch dead bodies. Now, the cutting of the hair and the touching of dead bodies, the Rechabites didn't do that. It was just the wine and they were supposed to live in tents and not be farmers. We find equivalence, interestingly enough, today in both Jewish and Christian traditions. The Hasidic Jews uh, still wear the same type of clothing that was current in Polish ghettos in the 18th century. Uh, that's when the Baal Temshav uh, came along and began sort of a revival among the Jews. And so they're sort of frozen in time. Um, you know, what they wear now used to be cutting edge fashion, but they have frozen that moment in time and they have not changed. In the Christian tradition, we have the Amish, who are a branch of the Mennonites, who are known for their simple living, their plain dress, and they resist sort of becoming modern, you know, modern appliances, electricity, and things like that. The Rechabites lived the way they did as an appropriate expression of their faith. They were people like their ancestor, Jonadab, who were jealous for God, and therefore they lived in this particular way. But we don't find anyone else, whether in scripture or in history, who lived the way that the Rechabites did. I think we could imagine that it would seem very nostalgic. It's like being in the wilderness all over again, living in tents, being nomads. But the prohibition on alcohol is something altogether different. As sentimental or nostalgic as one might be for living in tents, it seems that the Rechabites had forgotten a very important passage of Scripture from Deuteronomy 6. I'm sure they knew the first part. The second part I think they were a little weak on. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Therefore, you must have a house, it would seem. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large and flourishing cities. You did not build houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards, and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. There is a danger to living in houses. One might, in fact, forget that it is God who provides shelter. We might look at the house as, this is my shelter, this is my protection. I think if we lived in tents, if we were nomads, I think we might have maybe a much more vibrant faith that said, Lord, this tent's not going to keep much out. It's not going to keep marauders out. It does not provide perhaps adequate protection. You are our protection. And so perhaps that is what intrigued uh, the Rechabites about this. They originally did not live north of Jerusalem. They lived south of Jerusalem in the desert area, in the Negev area. Somehow, and I guess because they're wandering, because they're nomads, they end up in the northern kingdom with Jehu. But when the northern kingdom falls, they move into the southern kingdom. And so here they are, centuries later, after the kingdom has fallen, they are in what we know as Judah. They are living inside Jerusalem, as we see in verse number 11. But I think they're still living in tents. Now they are within the city walls because of the Babylonians. So now let's look at verses 1 through 11, and hopefully now this will all sort of come together. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord and give them wine to drink. So I went to Jazaniah, son of Jeremiah, the son of Habaziniah, and his brothers and all his sons, the whole family of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the room of the sons of Hanan, son of Igdaliah, the man of God. It was next to the room of the officials, which was over Maasiah, son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. Then I set bowls full of wine and some cups before the men of the Rechabite family and said to them, drink some wine. But they replied, we do not drink wine because our forefather, Jonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. Neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. Also, you must never build houses, sow seed or plant vineyards. You must never have any of these things, but must always live in tents. Then you will live a long time in the land where you are nomads. We have obeyed everything our forefather, Jonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us. Neither we nor our wives nor our sons and daughters have ever drunk wine or built houses to live in, or had vineyards, fields, or crops. We have lived in tents and have fully obeyed everything our forefather Jonadab commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded this land, we said, Come, 
we must go to Jerusalem to escape the Babylonian and Aramean armies. So we have remained in Jerusalem. On the face of it, Jeremiah has committed a tremendous, a huge social blunder. It would be the equivalent on some level of going to a temperance meeting or an AA meeting and breaking out some wine and offering it to everyone. And if you want to make it even closer to Jeremiah's situation, it would be like inviting an AA group to our church service or to the church building, a temperance league meeting here and breaking out wine and say, come on, let's all drink. What is Jeremiah thinking? But this has to be more than a social blunder, a faux pas, if you wish. This is something commanded by the Lord. Jeremiah knows they don't drink wine. The Lord knows they don't drink wine. What is going on here? Did you notice where this took place? It took place in the temple area, in the rooms on the side of the temple, in the rooms of the son of or the man of God. Big Goliath. And so the question I think must be answered what is going on? Just a parenthesis here, a side note. I think there is another story in the book of Kings that sort of they must have had in the back of their minds, they must have been familiar with. It's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 13. And just to remind you of the story, this is when the ten tribes to the north have broken away. Rehoboam has replaced Solomon as king. Solomon has died. And the ten tribes to the north have broken away, sort of a tax revolt, because they don't want to pay the high taxes anymore. Their king is Jeroboam. But Jeroboam is afraid of something. He knows that being good Jews, they're going to go to Jerusalem for the three feasts every year. And if the people from the ten tribes keep going to Jerusalem every year, three times a year, they're going to get sentimental. They're going to say, what were we ever fighting about? Why did we ever secede from you guys? You know, we should get together. And then Jeroboam was particularly afraid that they say, well, since you guys have a king, we should get rid of ours, and they would kill Jeroboam. So he said, I need to have an alternate or an alternative system. And that's precisely what he created. Ironically and tragically, he built two golden calves. And he put one in the southern part of the kingdom in Bethel, again, very ironic, the house of God, and then in Dan to the north so that people could either go to Bethel or if they were closer to the north, go up to Dan. This is what Jeremiah said to the people. It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. How tragic, how ironic. So the Lord sends someone who remains unnamed in the whole story. He is simply referred to as a man of God. He is sent to go to, they're dedicating the altar and the golden calf, and he goes to proclaim a word of judgment against Jeroboam. And Jeroboam tries to get him to you know, hang out a bit. And he says, I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. In other words, this is a round trip, but don't go back the same way and don't eat anything, don't drink anything. You have one task and one task only and do nothing else. 
Well, there are a couple guys who are in the audience when this happens, and they run home and tell their dad, who is a prophet. He's an old man. He's also not named. And he says, did you see which way this guy was going back? And he said, yeah. So he gets on his donkey, and he goes after this man and says, hey, come back to my house. You know, I, let's, let me show some hospitality. Come to my house. The man of God said, I cannot turn back or go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I have been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. But then this is what the old prophet said. The old prophet answered, I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. And then in parenthesis, but he was lying to him. The man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. And in the midst of the meal, the spirit of the Lord comes on the old prophet, the lying prophet. And he prophesies, this is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat or drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your fathers. In other words, you're not going to make it home. You're going to die on this side of the border, and you're going to be buried here. He gets on his donkey, and on the way home, a lion attacks him and kills him. Doesn't touch the donkey. And people are sort of freaked by this as they see, here's a dead man, here's a lion, and there's a donkey. And the lion's not messing with the man, not messing with the donkey. And so they go and they tell and the, the, the old prophet gets this man and buries him uh, himself. The Rechabites know that Jeremiah is a prophet. Okay. The fact that he has arranged this meeting in rooms of the temple of God, uh, in a room of a man of God, shows that this is not some small thing. But how do they know Jeremiah is not lying to them? How do they know that he's not like the old prophet back in 1 Kings 13? After 250 years more, or more of following this tradition, just because somebody said, the Lord told me that suddenly they should change what they've been doing. Now, if this chapter were to end, if the story were to end here at verse number 11, I think we might simply say, well, that's a really weird story. And I think Jeremiah himself might have thought this is rather strange. But we see that in verse number 12, the word of the Lord comes to him and explains what's going on. Verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Go and tell the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, will you not learn a lesson and obey my words, declares the Lord? Jonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his sons not to drink wine And this commandment has been kept to this day. They do not drink wine because they obey their forefathers' command. But I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not obeyed me. Again and again I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you will live in the land I have given to you and your your fathers. But you have not paid attention or listened to me. 
the descendants of Jonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command of their four, their, the command their forefathers, their forefather gave them, but these people have not obeyed me. And now it all begins to come into focus and begins to make sense. We have what we would call a symbolic act, like Jeremiah going to the potter's house or Jeremiah breaking the pot. The Lord wants to make a point to his people. He argues from the lesser to the greater. The Rechabites are scrupulous about keeping a man-made commandment, something given by their forefather, Jonadab. A man said to them, do not drink wine. They haven't had wine for over two and a half centuries. On the other hand, you have not a creature like Jonadab, you have the creator who has again and again sent his servants, the prophets, and called on people to change their lives. And they did not listen. They did not pay attention. How ironic, I think this still happens today, that we are much more inclined to take the word of a fellow creature than we are the word of God. But there is a difference between the people, there is another difference between the Rechabites and the people of Judah. Beyond their obedience, it is their future. And this is what we see in verses 17, 18, and 19. First of all, to the people of Judah, the disobedient. Therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I'm going to bring on Judah and on everyone living in Jerusalem every disaster I pronounced against them. I spoke to them, but they did not listen. I called to them, but they did not answer. We've heard this before, and now we hear it again. But now there's a, I think there's a different forcefulness to it. God is going to bring all the disasters that he promised on the people in Jerusalem and Judah. What are those things he promised? Well, back when the covenant was made. It's what we call the penalty phase, the penalty clause. If you keep this contract, this covenant, good things will happen. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. And God says, guess what, folks? You have disobeyed me. You have not listened to me. And therefore, I will bring on you the things I promised. What about those who obeyed human traditions? Verses 18 and 19. Then Jeremiah said to the family of the Rechabites, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You have obeyed the command of your forefather Jonadab and have followed all his instructions and have done everything he ordered. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Jonadab, son of Rechab, will never fail to have a man to serve me. And here we see the principle repeated, but now positively, obedience brings blessing. But wait a minute. If the Rechabites stay in Jerusalem and Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem, won't they suffer as well? We're not told, but I would say probably. But in fact, they are told the line would continue. The line would continue because they had been faithful in their obedience. So what are we to make of this story? What are we to make here of Jeremiah 35? And I think we have to really be careful 
in the conclusions that we draw here. One thing is clear. God calls us to obedience, and we could add careful obedience. He has spoken. We are to listen. He has called to us. We are to answer him. But like it or not, the Rechabites and their lifestyle, I think, is what is fascinating to us about this passage here. As I told you, their lifestyle was not something God had commanded. God had never said, you can't drink and you need to live in tents and you can't farm or plant vineyards. God hadn't commanded it. But there's a lesson in here somewhere, and it might be secondary. I think the primary lesson is one that we've heard over and over again. If you do not obey God, there are consequences. And if you obey God, there are blessings, there are consequences as well. I think we need to know something, and that is that the Lord loves unity. He loves unity and truth. In Psalm 133, uh, a wonderful psalm, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard down upon the collar of his robes. I think when we first read this, we we tend to think of the sensation of oil being poured on one's head and running down. Um, But the oil is not the focus of this particular simile. Rather, it is speaking of Aaron's ordination. Oil was poured on Aaron's head when he was ordained to become the high priest. And as the high priest... He was to lead Israel in their worship of God. And so the ordaining of Aaron to be the high priest, in a sense, establishes a system of worship in which God's people together worship God, who is their God. God has told us what to do. He has called us to worship him. And Aaron is the first high priest who leads God's people in this worship. Unity is something that God wants to see in his people. Worship is something we do every Sunday as a congregation. I trust that we do it through the week, individually or with our families. But as a congregation, we do it. We are to be united. There is to be unity. In John 17, when Jesus prayed what has been known as the high priestly prayer. He prayed that all of them may be one. And then a couple of verses later, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And so unity is something that is very important. But this is where I'm going with this, in case you're wondering. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. For us to be united does not mean that we all have to be the same. And in ancient Judah, there was a place for the Rechabites. No doubt some people thought, these people are weird. You know, what's with the tents? And why won't you drink wine? Um, But within God's economy, we don't all have to be alike. We have to be united, but we don't have to be uniform. God doesn't call us all to be the same. 
but he does call us to be obedient. That's non-negotiable. But the uniformity is nothing. That's not something we find God commanding. It would be rather ironic if God made us all different and then wanted us all to be the same. God wants us to be one, but there is diversity within that unity. We as God's people are to be marked, all of us are to be marked by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is demonstrated in obedience. That's what the people of Judah are called to. They are called to obedience. But we're also supposed to be marked by love for Christ, which is to be demonstrated in love for one another. Not uniformity, but unity. Jesus said something the night before he was put to death. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Not that you all dress the same. Not that you all have the same position on alcohol, the Rechabites versus everyone else. Not that you do everything the same way, but that you love one another. And in loving one another, we show that, in fact, we love God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And if we love God, we will obey him. It all comes together. And so the call of God, and I think the Rechabites really demonstrate this, is not for us all to be the same. Look at God's creation. Just was it, Someone came up with the phrase of useless beauty. I mean, just this sheer diversity of things that we find. There isn't just one kind of flower, one kind of tree, one kind of grass. And there isn't just one kind of person. He's made us all different. So let's not all be the same, except this, that we love Christ, we love one another, and because of that, we obey God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this most unusual story, which at least at first reading, seems rather strange. But we thank you for what we can learn from it. That you, you call us to obedience. And we are to obey you. You call and we are to listen. You speak and we are to answer. And may we as your children be marked by obedience. But interestingly enough, you've not called us all to be the same. And in our uniqueness and distinctiveness, we are your children. We are to be one. We are to be united. I fear that the world does not know that many who call you Lord are in fact your disciples because there is no love. May all men know that we are your disciples because we love one another, not because we're the same, but because we love you and we love one another. 
by your grace, may we think on these things in the coming days. And now as we leave this place, we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us. Again, we remember those who are being affected by the fires. Pray for your protection and your safety to them. Watch over them. As we walk in the world this week, may we be salt and may we be light. May we be salt in a world that's lost its way. May we be light in a world of darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.